Welcome to the Generous Business Owner Podcast, where business owners gain inspiration and encouragement to live a legacy, not just leave one. And now your hosts, Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Welcome, everybody, to the Generous Business Owner Podcast. My name is Jeff Thomas, one of the co-hosts, and we have a very special treat for you today. We have Sid Jansma, who is the chairman of the board of Wolverine Gas and Oil Corporation. And uh, Sid, what city are you coming from uh, to us from today? I'm coming from Grand Rapids, Michigan. Bright and sunny day, which is a little unusual for Grand Rapids. So I'm coming from Houston, where it's cloudy, and uh, you're coming from Grand Rapids. I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be the other, other way around in this time of year, but uh, I'm sure you'll take it. I'm going to take it. And, uh, <laughs> you, can, you, you can keep your cloudy with meatball. <laughs> exactly. Well, thanks so much for being with us, Sin. This is going to be fun. We always try to start these conversations with just a little bit of history of where you grew up, what your family was like, that sort of thing. Yeah, thank you for that. I grew up in Grand Rapids, Michigan. I was born here in 1943. And uh, my mother and dad, uh, my dad was a Dutch immigrant from Dockham, Friesland, immigrated here in the uh, 1919, as a matter of fact. Wow. And uh, as a Dutch immigrant, he had decided apparently that he couldn't get married until he could afford a wife. And that didn't happen until he was 41. And so I was born when he was 43. Wow. And so had an older dad, which was really great. And uh, he took my brother and I on a lot of fishing trips to Canada, a bunch of stuff. So we had a, we had a really wonderful upbringing. My dad was, a, was in the building business and got promoted by some promoter to invest a little bit in an oil well. And in 1948, my dad thought, I could do that better than he does. So my dad went in the oil business. And that's when our company started. So as a kid, I would go out in the oil field uh, with my dad, and I kind of fell in love with the business hmm. and got to a point where I knew when I was in high school that I wanted to go in the oil and gas business. And uh, so I ended up going to Calvin University, which is a Christian university in Grand Rapids. I got a Bachelor of Arts. I, w I went to the University of Michigan, got a master and MBA in finance and accounting. And then went right into business with my dad. By that time, he was 66, and he was caught up with it. We had two offices at the time, a big company. He had the office with the windows, and I had the one with the door. So he had to walk through my office to get to his. And basically, he said to me, I can still remember sitting there with him, and he, you know, he said, if you can make anything out of this, go for it. And, uh, of course, I was ready to go for it in spades. And then God, God brought just some beautiful opportunities along. This was the late 60s. And uh, Shell Oil Company made a huge play in the state of Michigan and got a discovery up by Gaylord, Michigan, which uh, I had he I heard about. And I went up there and started working around Gaylord in the late 60s. And would you believe, I got my first significant oil discovery in 1972. So, mind you, just six years after getting out of school, and it was a, a couple of million barrels, which was pretty good. And then the Arabs did their Arab oil embargo, and the price of oil went up from $3 to 35 or 40 
And then uh, we had price curbs put on oil. We had, that uh, was all subject to price curbs, and so we could only sell it for X dollars. But I fell in love with the industry, and I decided that exploration was the way to go rather than buying somebody else's well, and went down that path and eventually hired my own geologists and geophysicists and engineers. And today, my son owns the company, but we have all those disciplines sitting here within 50 feet of me. And we have been blessed with uh, some very substantial discoveries and some very, very disappointing dry holes along the way. So that's the, that's the all of it. Well, I, I, what I'm amazed at, it's pretty interesting that you were talking about the advantage of having an older father, you know? Yeah. Maybe because he had maybe some resources to take you guys, uh, you know, uh, you know, there's pluses and minuses to that, you know, I guess. It's just the way you look at it, but I think that's so interesting that when you got out of college, he was already, you know, 66, kind of toward the end of his career, and it's like, hey, man, you know, sooner you can get up to speed, the better, right? Yeah, um, yeah. What was that like? I know that was the only path you had, but that's very uncommon, I think, to, to maybe be given that level of responsibility and vision so early. Well, what was it? How do you kind of look back on that now? I'm sure you just showed up and did what you needed to do at the time, but I, I know that's a pretty uncommon. I'm just curious as, as time has passed, how you, how you go back and look at that. Well, of course, hindsight is beautiful 2020 right. vision, isn't it? Yeah, right. um, I mean, at my stage today, I look back at it and see God's hand in it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and the real beauty of God's hand was not only was my dad kind of wanting to quit it, but my dad got very, uh, my dad was a six-day creationist. I mean, uh, God created the world in six days, count them, 24 hours a day. And uh, I was too. I, I believe the Bible. I believe it 100%. Uh, but I did not see the world as six days. I mean, and then I would go out in the oil field. I, one day I had the, the, the audacity to bring a fossil in that I had, we had gotten out of a well. And I kind of, I didn't slam it on my dad's death, but I put it down kind of hard. And I said, Dad, this thing is more than 6,000 years old. Well, it raised his dander, and we had a good discussion. And, uh, and we realized after being in business together about six or eight months that we just weren't going to talk about that anymore. Um, we, had to, we had to do business together, and so we put it to bed. But my father decided that maybe I was off on the wrong tangent. And so he started taking courses at Calvin College and he started reading, reading, reading. And he ended up writing five books on evolution and creation. Now, they were short little self published books, but uh, Jerry Falwell distributed 40,000 of his books for him at one time. Wow. And yeah, and, uh, and so the beauty of that was. I mean, my dad was right next to me the whole time at business until he died. I'd walk into his office and say, say hello every day. But he was busy doing his thing on those, and that basically kept him really out of my hair because he was so interested in that, and he had very erudite people he was dealing with. I mean, I mean, Falwell was nobody's fool, and, and, uh, and so I was able to run the business and do things, and I'd come in and tell him what we were doing, and he'd challenge me. But he'd always say, well, if that's what you think we should do, well, then go ahead and do it. That is a real blessing in looking back. Uh, and I realized that a lot of men and women who get into business with their family today uh, probably don't have that. And uh, so that's very unusual on my upbringing, but I, I see it as a real blessing.
Definitely. Well, there's a couple of things that come to mind as you're telling this story. I, I think you're absolutely right. And we'll get into kind of how you've done this transition with your son, uh, which is also interesting. But I, I mean, one of the things that pops into my brain is this idea of empower, don't control is one of our principles as a company. You know, we try to do it internally, but then that's something we talk to the families that God's given us to uh, serve about. And I think as fathers, especially sometimes I know for me, that can be hard to do. I think I have the best idea and I want I don't mean to control my kids, but maybe I think about expressing those things in, in, in that way. And I think helping it helps me to think about, oh, how do I empower them to come up with their own ideas? So I think your dad did that pretty beautifully for you, it sounds like. He, he did. And also, I will mention he had an accountability thing there, and that was this. He knew I had a degree in accounting from the University of Michigan. He really respected that. I was the first person in the family to go to higher education. So my father made me prepare a P&L every month, and I was required to have it done seven days after the end of the month. And that P&L was how much money did we take in, how much did we spend, and what did we have left over? And it, it was on a card. So January was the first column, and way off on the right was year to date. So January, then February would come, and off on the right was year to date for February, uh, including February. And he was insistent on that. Now, what that did is A, made me accountable. B, it was good for me. I mean, I knew exactly mm. uh, what we had, and so, but so did he. And then the fun part of that is uh, it was about 10 years after I got in the business, I came in one day and uh, he said to me, You're going to buy your brothers and your mother out. And I said, Dad, we don't have any money. Because, I mean, it was all out there working. And uh, But in that 10 years or 12 years I'd been in business, I had bought some apartment complexes. I had bought, gotten into some other oil projects. And uh, I, he said to me, look, I sent you to school. You figure it out, but you've got to do it. Oh, boy. I went home and told my wife. And I actually cried over that. It was, what am I going to do? I mean, well, bottom line is, I actually, I could solve that riddle because I distributed assets. And, uh, and my dad told me how each, much each of my brothers were going to get and how much my mother was going to get. And uh, for my mother, it was, a, it was a long-term, slow burn note. I guess he figured I wouldn't mess up with my mother. But for my brothers, it was properties on the line. And they all ended up becoming very wealthy at that time with properties, and I ended up with the company. Um, and in retrospect, I look back at it, realized that my dad is the only one that could have done that. Uh, he told my brother, this is what you're going to get, and it's really good. And they, they accepted his word for it, which it was. It was really good. My brothers lived out of that, what they got the rest of their lives. And... Um, but he could, he's the only one that would have done it. You can imagine if I had gone to my siblings and said, hey, I'd like to buy you out. I'll offer you this much. I mean, you just know human nature would have been, oh, Sid, uh, he's offering me half of what it's worth or whatever. So, so that happened. And then my dad also said to me at that time, I'm going to own 2% of the company and until I die and I'll will it to you. And you and I, Sid, are going to have the same salary until I die. <laughs> and uh, I said, yeah, is that right? He said, yep, that's how it's going to be. Is that okay? I said, all right, that's fine. And so we actually had the same salary until he died at age 88. 
every month. And, and then he would play the game, and I've learned to play this game since I transitioned. He would come in my office in December because, like I said, we had this monthly P&L, and he'd say, right. yeah. in his Dutch brogue, he'd say, well, we're having a pretty good year. Yeah, yeah it's looking pretty good. He'd say, well, why, why don't you write out the check for yourself for 50000 so I'd go right out two checks for fifty thousand, and he'd get one, and I'd get the other. That's the gospel truth. And of course, when I so when I transitioned with my son, which is now seven years ago, I he my my son knew the story. But I said to my son, "What's good for the goose is good for the gander." Sid, uh, he's Sid the third. So I'm getting the same salary that he is, and I got an extra fifty grand last December. <laughs> <laughs> I love that story. Now, now, okay, my business brain can't help but make me ask this question, though. How, that salary, which is, uh, you know, kind of negotiable if you run the company, distributions uh, of profit are probably where the vast majority is, or, or is, was salary always most of the percentage of di- the distributions? How, how, how did you think about through managing that? I just have my business brain has to ask. Well... Bottom line, once I bought the company, we had the same salary. But of course, all the profits, I mean, my dad had 2% equity. So if we did have distributions, he'd get 2%. But actually, we didn't do distributions because I was building the company. You were ruining decades. Oh, absolutely. Okay. And uh, it was going into a lot of different projects. I mean, I'll just say this uh, some foolish things. I almost went bankrupt in 1986 because I got into a business outside of my skill set. It was because of a friend who came to me, and it's not like I believe a friend and everything, but I knew the person well, and and I got into a project with this person. But then what happened is the project kept getting bigger and bigger, Mm -hmm. and uh, that's that's kind of a thing that, I I mean, I've learned. I can tell this story. I mean, uh, it's easy to get into something, but you've got to have some boundaries early on, and I didn't have the smarts to have the boundaries yet in the 80s. It looked to, anyway, and anyway, I did get quite quite heavily involved, and finally, he had to declare the company bankrupt, and uh, I, I just tell you this, I'll, I'll admit this to you and over this podcast, I had, I had guaranteed a note for the company, which was the stupidest thing in the world, yeah. and I have never done it since. There's even a scripture verse that tells you not to do that. But the bottom line is I did. And the bank came to me, and, and it was almost a million bucks way back then. They said, what are you going to do about it? And I said, I'm going to pay you in cash. Wow. Which, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I came to understand that when people did that, sometimes they wiggled and squirmed and then paid part of it. But that I didn't wasn't going to do that anyway. So bottom line is I sold some other assets, and I, I paid the bank. And um, I look back at that bank has done me favor since then for years. And, and uh, it was just a wonderful thing, but it never dawned on me to try to squeeze them. It was, I signed it, I, ha- I owe it. And, uh, but it was a very, very hard time. I mean, uh, it crunched my style for several years. But God brought finally a beautiful discovery to me here in Michigan. It was a gas discovery. Uh, in the late 80s, and uh, that kind of made everything whole, and uh, and the business was flourishing. And um, 
So, but to back, to go back on the transition concept, it was helpful for my dad to do what he did. I have transitioned my company to my, my oldest son uh, because none of the other kids were interested anyway. And uh, I did do things for my other kids, which we could talk about later if you wanted to. But the bottom line on the transition is I read a few transition books with my son. We both realized it was something that had to get done. I could not transition until I was 72. And then I realized I'd better do this before my son gets tired of the business if he wants to do something else. So I, I asked him if he was interested in taking it over, and he very much was. And so uh, uh, I transitioned it to him uh, seven years ago, I think it was. And uh, it's been good ever since. And the deal was, I told him, uh, I, I, I do get the same salary. That's kind of cute, but and I do own 2%. That's kind of cute. But I, I told him, I, you run it. I don't want any responsibility. And I do not have responsibility here. I attend staff meetings every Monday be, to be informed. But in the first year I transitioned, my son asked me not to attend the staff meetings. Uh, that was a little hard to take, but I understood it, and I didn't. And uh, because I was, people were, even though I kept my mouth shut, people were wondering what I was thinking. And so that there is a real transition that happens when a leader moves on, and people have to be well aware of the human dynamics of all the other people they worked with. So I stayed out of here. I stayed out of that meeting for a while, and eventually he said, sure, come on back. And I now invest in some of the projects that the company is doing. If I really like them, I'll, I'll buy an interest in it, get promoted just like anybody else. Gotcha. And and if you don't mind me asking, with how does that buyout work? Was that also kind of a note from your son to you for most of that buyout? How did that transaction happen? Yes. Yes. I, uh, I sold it to him for an appraised price. And that we had a lot of liquidity, and um, uh, we had used that for a project. And so I ended up with a slow bird note that I'm getting paid every month, quite a chunk of money, actually. Yeah. I mean, I, I, uh, I'm doing real well, and I got a lot to get paid yet. So that has worked out well. But he has paid me for it. And, it, and also, he doesn't come, and he shares problems with me if I ask, but he doesn't come in and uh, have me have any headache over it. Right. No. I mean, I, really, I think that's an important story. I know that's the only one you've got, but, uh, yeah. but, but I think the way that is very unique, the responsibility you had early in your career, and that really, uh, you know, I was reading this morning about, uh, you know, Solomon's son and how he listened to the wrong people. And yeah. Just, go well for him you know yeah it's easy for us to kind of judge that but at least for me like oh you know what a dumb guy but it's easy to have that happen sometimes especially when you're young and uh did, did you have some other people in your life uh, that were kind of guiding you in the in in the right direction i just think it's pretty miraculous how you really were able to do that uh, at a young age, when there's all kinds of other sort of temptations and, and, and things in your life? Well, one of the things that really helped me a lot was my wife. Um, yes. And uh, we had fallen in love as high school seniors. We dated all through college. We dated for four years, four months, and I don't know how many days. 
he graduated with a degree in residency, and I graduated with a Bachelor of Arts from Calvin. We married the day after she graduated. And as a matter of fact, cute story there is we just assumed that, that one, upon graduation, she wouldn't have to work. But in those days, if you were a registered nurse, you were actually working in the hospital. You were a candy striper is what they called you. Yep. And they actually scheduled her to work the, her wedding day. Wow. And she complained of my wedding day. So they let her out at four o'clock. <laughs> and, uh, and so we got married at seven. Well, oh, come on. Yeah. But, uh, but so, but we had four children in five years. In other words, yes. uh, we were very busy. Yes. <laughs> and having, and, and having four kids in five years, we were both busy with a home life as well as with the business life. And that home life was a real grounder for me. And, uh, and I can tell you, I mean, I got involved actually on a national level. I started lobbying for the oil industry when I was 28 years old. And I would go to Washington and I mean, I would walk the halls of Congress. I eventually I was in the president's office on different things, uh, Bush and Reagan and Bush. And I would come home and change diapers. And, and there was a thing they used to say, they used to say you might get Potomac fever, which was you just get caught up in the uh, highfalutin stuff that's going on. And I loved it. But I came home and I had a life and that really grounded me. And my first wife allowed me to go to Washington and do that. But also we had a great relationship where I could call home and be grounded. And that, that helped on the business too. Also, I'll say this, what helped is I had a tremendous revelation seven years after I got into business. I guess it was when I was 29. A friend of mine who was running Michigan Consolidated Gas Company's land division, that's a, that's a big utility here in the state of Michigan, um, his name was Bill. He was retiring at age 65, and he, his office was the top of the rock in Detroit. It, that's the big white building. He was right at the top. So I drove into Detroit to wish him well. And I'm sitting in his office, looking out at the view, because his desk was looking at me, his back was turned to the view. And he started to cry. And what are you crying for? He said, you know, Sid, I worked in this business for 35 years, and I don't even know my own daughter. And then he talked about that. Now, I had been married seven years. We had our first child eight months and three weeks after, after our honeymoon. And I like to say the ladies of the church were counting, but we weren't. And, <laughs> and uh, uh I, driving home, I thought, wow, I don't, want to I don't want to have that happen to me. Right. And then on that trip home, no kidding, there was, I was listening to the radio, and there was something about, on the radio, about a child's personality is formed by the time they're seven. And my oldest son was six. Mm. And I had, I had these three other kids behind that, and I thought, wow, he's almost seven. And I decided then and there, I talked to my wife. I used to work six days a week. I would go in Saturday morning because it was, it was quiet on a Saturday morning. I could get some things done without anybody bugging me. And uh, I decided I'm only working five days a week. I'm taking off Saturday and Sunday. And we had our first family vacation the next summer. Rented a motorhome and went up north. But I decided that was a major change in my life. I, I put the family really first. And that really helped me ground my whole business career. 
uh, because I've had my family on my mind all the time. So when I'm at a meeting in Houston, I mean, you know, I mean, out in the world, it's rough. And not only out in the world, but there's a lot of temptations. Yes. And yes, out in the world, I have been propositioned and this and that and the next thing. And, and I have been able to, by God's grace, uh, not stumble on that stuff. I mean, I stumbled on some stuff, I, I admit. And um, I've got to fight greed, especially. That's a toughie so when you're in business. I, I just appreciate your sharing that and how valuable uh, focusing on your family can be and uh, making that a priority. I think it's, it's hard to do for a lot of us, especially when you're running your own business. And we got a lot of business owners listening to this. It can, it can consume you. You know, you can work for the business instead of it working for you. And I almost think that's the default unless you set those kind of guardrails the way uh, you talked about doing that. So now let's talk about that. You talked about uh, the money thing. This is another issue we all deal with. Uh, you know, steward versus owner, who owns it? What are we supposed to do with it? How do we make it work for us also uh, or for the kingdom? So let's talk. I know that. Christian education is a passion. Uh, you, you do a lot of giving. Uh, so let's talk about some of those things. How do you, you know, where did that motivation come from? And then how did you find the things that uh, you're passionate about? Okay. Well, I think the motivation goes back to my raising. My parents would always emphasize that my brother and I give a little something on Sunday. And I remember putting a nickel in the collection plate <laughs> and feeling pretty good about it. Yeah. Um, and so it was just this idea that you did give something away somewhere. So that started it. When my first wife passed away from cancer, I was going through all of our business, all of our records. And I, I had, would you believe, all of my canceled checks from the time we got married. I mean, for 41 years, canceled checks. That's a little retentive, isn't it? But anyway, I found checks for $2 made out to the church because we were in school. That's all we could afford. It was two bucks a week. And, but she had the motivation also to give. So that helped. But then a beautiful thing was, um, I was coming home from a discovery that I had made and I was reading my Bible on the plane and I came upon Deuteronomy 8 verse 18, which I can quote to you from memory just about, it says, you think that all these things, that this wealth is from yourself, but it is the Lord your God who has given you the ability to create this wealth and therefore keeps his covenant with you. And it was like, oh man, so all this stuff that I've got is, is really God's gift to me and he's empowered me to do it. I mean, I, that verse really, had, I had fun with that verse also because uh, it's not like God just writes it on the wall. I guess I wish he did, but um, he doesn't. And also, if he did, then we'd just be robots following something. But I've, I've learned in my life that living with God is a give and take. God does guide, but he also, uh, sometimes when I pray for wisdom, I kind of hear the answer back. Come on, Sid, you dummy, I've given you a lot of experience, now go use it. And it's like, just get out there and, and do what your experience has given you to do. So that verse really opened my eyes to, um, and that's a principal verse. So what I see is all these good things that I have are a gift from God. My brains and my entrepreneurial skills, which 
I still have. I have to fight the desire to get into another business. Yeah. Um, I, I've even made a deal with my son. I won't get into my own business on something else because he's just going to have to pick up the pieces. So I just, invest. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I can see it. Yeah, but th- that that's all a gift from God. And other people don't have that urge to go do those things. They have other beautiful gifts. So I'm a steward. And uh, then that means, what do you do with this stuff? Right. And, um, yeah, that's a, that's a big thing. I, I, I guess I would say this to people that are listening in right now is that's a hard, an- there's a hard answer to a hard question because, uh, but one of the answers is you're living where you're living, whether yes. it's in Houston or Midland or Grand Rapids and things come to you where you are and uh, they don't, they don't come just because you're out of chance. It could very well be that God is bringing something to your mind because he wants you to pay attention to it. And so I think we have to be humble to say, I don't know the answers um, all the time, and I wonder about this. And uh, and then, of course, we all know that as you get money and get a lot of it, you're a target from everybody. True. And, um, and uh, Grand Rapids especially is a target. It's known as one of the giving cities in the United States. It is. Uh, uh, the other giving city is Salt Lake City. Mm. And um, and so we get, if anybody's starting a, a Christian ministry, they always come through Grand Rapids and we hear about it. And, and it's hard to figure out what are you, you going to do. But So I pray about those things. I talk to my wife and uh, get a lot of guidance here and there. But uh, it starts out knowing whose it is. And it is God's in the first place, and every one of us knows we are not taking one thing with us when we pass away, are we? Right. The uh, the uh, hearse does not have a U-Haul, as they say. That, that I almost said it, but I did. <laughs> That's right. And so now, what I think is so interesting is I'm fascinated. I mean, God is so he's so creative, and you know, every snowflake is different. Every human life is different. The gifts he gives everybody, the path he's given you, even though it mirrors your father, but your father was an immigrant, uh, you stand on his shoulders, your son stands on your shoulders. Like it's, it's cool, uh, the similarities, but everybody's different too. And so I know that you've been real involved with education and actually the story of your lobbying in the uh, oil and gas business starts to make some sense because I know you're very involved. Maybe just, if you don't mind, just sharing all, one or two passions of yours. Okay. I, I think I could say the biggest passion is education, and that, that came because we had four kids mm. and started sending them to a Christian school and realized what a great education they were getting, and then understanding that there are people who can't afford it, and so yes. this getting involved and raising money so that there's funds available to underwrite education for those who can't afford it. In Grand Rapids, there are several schools here who, uh, which really reach out to communities that don't have the funds that other communities have. And that has been a special interest of mine and my wife. But education itself, the bottom line on education is you, we are investing in the lives of kids and then in the lives of college people who are going to go out and uh, make an impact in the world. And what a chance to impact lives as they're growing up. I mean, 
it's the biggest chance of all to help form a person. I like to support uh, the theological seminaries because I like to say, in, a, in that case, you're supporting the training of leaders who are going to go out and have a huge impact. I mean, they're going to go out to a church and minister to a lot of people, and so I'm investing in a theological seminary and training and so forth in, in a way that gets a big bang for your buck. I'll, so I carry that. Uh, and now I have the honor of serving on the board of the uh, Council for Christian Colleges and Universities, CCCU. Um, we represent over 140 of the Christian colleges in, in the United States and Canada. I think we've got almost 200 around the world. And I'm, I am now treasurer of the board. I, I sit on the executive committee and I'm involved in some of the thinking there which I really enjoy. I do have a quirk. Uh, I enjoyed serving on church councils too, as being secretary or anything, and then I would be, they'd like to be chairman or whatever. And both my first wife and my second wife couldn't stand it. And they just wonder, how in the world can you do that? And they'd be like, well, there you go. <laughs> my poor first wife was elected secretary of one of them, you know, because after all, she was a woman. And yeah. so she could be secretary. That was the thing. And of course, I said that because I have now been secretary of some boards, uh, and, and it's not a sexist thing, it's just you've got some skills. And um, so there you go. Uh, higher education as a way to really invest in the future. Yeah, and, and you know, it, it makes sense. This is one of the things that uh, there's just such a, and you said it, what has God taken you through uniquely? So, you know, I think about you being the first one in your family to go get to higher education. And then, yeah. you know, that was helpful, sounds like, in your career. And, and then uh, your four kids, you know, you want them. And then you see how the Christian angle also helps, not just the higher education, but the Christian angle. And then you also had this sort of lobbying experience because some of what, you know, CCCU does is lobbying, right? Are you involved in any of that? Why, why is the lobbying necessary for these schools? Lobbying is key for just giving out information. A, a person in the legislature or in the executive branch, many uh, most of the time, doesn't know what you're facing in your particular line of work, whether it's oil or whether it's mm -hmm. publishing or anything like you're doing. And so lobbying is a general term for me. I'm not a, I'm not a paid lobbyist, and, I, we, and, and we don't do much of as far as uh, paid lobbying. If we do that, we hire a lobbyist. But the right. point is, we, we do generate information yeah. that shows how higher education impacts its society where it is. And, and for instance, the Christian schools around the United States is a multi-billion dollar asset in the United States as far as impacting our own culture and paying salaries and generating things. And, but who would know that? And so it's up to us to pull those, that data together. And so what I find really nice about interacting on Capitol Hill and so forth is you're giving information that most people don't know because they're so busy. And, and then because of the information, you can get, sometimes get better results from a bill than you would get if you had not given them the information. And I find most most legislators are happy to get the information 
And as you may know, you're dealing many times not with the legislature, but with their staff. And that's very important. Uh, their staff is the one who many times pulls the conclusions together. And so you're, you're making hay talking to the staff as well as the legislature. Do you think it's harder these days to be a, for lack of a better term, devout Christian university? I, I think of some of the, uh, I mean, Harvard and Yale, the, these were originally Christian universities. And at some point they had some mission drift and kind of got away from those core values. Is that temptation still strong in higher ed for these Christian universities? Well, I think it goes like this. A Christian university wants to be Christian, and then they get faced with issues. And let's just get real blunt. How about the issue of LGBTQ on a Christian campus? We as Christians have been called to love people who are gay. And, and we must. But how does a college put that to work on their campus? I don't know. Some colleges do it one way, some do it another. But you will have dyna dynamics on a campus that will want to go down certain roads more strongly than on other campuses. And so some of us would say, would say, well, on this campus over here, they've gone too far. Whatever too far is, I'm not pushing yeah. it. I'm not trying to say, let you, let you think about that. But the, there is such a diverse opinion as to what loving gay people is all about that some people will say this college has gone too far not loving, and others will say this college has gone too far loving. So how do you put your practices that Christ has called us to do, your, your responsibilities, into practice? In this fallen world, we are going to have disagreements over that. And, and some people will say a certain college has gone liberal. Others will say it has. So I just say to you, we've got to be very careful, as, especially if you're a giver and if you're a person with big means. I believe that as a person with means, I should pay attention to certain colleges and universities and give there, but I should not use my money as a means of forcing them to uh, have a certain ethical practice. I think I need to side, side up with colleges which have the ethical practice that I like. Right. But as far as using my money and say, well, you're going to change it, mm. that's stupid because they want your money and they may tell you you're going to change it, but how changed are they in the long term? So I think a Christian giver has a huge responsibility to understand the places that they're giving money or that they're being solicited from. And to understand if that place goes down the, the road that they want to go. I think that's a, a great word. Look for the alignment, maybe not the uh, back to our empower and don't control. You know, I mean, empower the places that you think are doing it the right way. I think that's a, that's a great word. So, Sin, this has been such a fun conversation. You know, the way that we always try to wrap up this, uh, these discussions is uh, with a practical tip for another business owner that's on this journey and wants to kind of use their platform or their resources, uh, maybe in a little more generous way. They're probably behind you with experience in this way. And, uh, you know, you and I are just a couple of business owners uh, chatting, and uh, we're just doing this to try to help our friends uh, on this journey. And uh, of course, I always learn a lot from these. And so I always look forward to the practical tip. But 
What comes to mind when you think about uh, a business owner listening to this and says, boy, that was great, but what am I going to do differently tomorrow? What what might be a small step they could take in a, in a general direction? Uh, here's what's on my mind. We did get into it, but I'm gonna, at the very end, I would say this. As a wealthy business owner, you don't have the responsibility to make your kids and grandkids wealthy where they don't have to work. The best gift to my kids and grandkids is to give them a good start, but not to make it where they're trust fund babies. And I think that's a, a real temptation for people with money. And that rather think about how can I use these funds to empower other places and help my kids to see that that's a good thing to do. Oh man, I think that's such a good word. Um, we, we call that the gift of the struggle. You know, some of that, even though uh, your father uh, helps you have a platform in business, he also gave you a lot of responsibility early. And so, yeah. you, I mean, that made you who you are, right? And so, that's right. I, I think there's a, this strange thing in our society where it's like, I don't want to have my kids struggle the way I did. Well, maybe you want to give them a better head start. That, that's understandable. Maybe a better education. Maybe, you know, there's things you can do. But I think God made us to work, didn't he? I mean, yeah. that's, uh, uh, he works. Uh, so, so what does that look like? And I think that's different for everybody. And, but that is a, uh, as you and I talked about uh, before we started recording, you know, maybe give them uh, one leg up, but not two legs up on the couch. That's right. <laughs> there you go. That's a good word. Well, Sid, thanks so much for sharing your story with us. I know it's going to be an inspiration to many. Thank you, Jeff. Ed, Ed. I appreciate talking with you today. All right. Well, thanks, everybody, for joining us on this week's Generous Business Owner Podcast. Please leave us uh, your ratings and reviews and share it with your friends. And uh, we will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to the Generous Business Owner Podcast with Jeff Thomas, Alan Barnhart, and Jeff Rutt. Make sure to follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. You can find the guest contact information in the show notes. Stay tuned for the next episode.